The average man overestimates his fighting ability by 1,000%. The average poker player overestimates their ability by 1 million percent. But what if there was a way to prove it? To go all the way to winning the World Series of Poker without spending a single penny. I'm excited to announce that I am now working with GG Poker, the best poker site in the world, and I'm going to be bringing you the best tournaments that you can be involved with as a fan of me and poker. Starting this Thursday and every Thursday after that, we are playing free rolls with all of you online on GG Poker. And I need all of you lot to get involved. This Thursday, the top 20% will be getting a share of $1,000 tournament dollars. And for everyone who makes the final table, you will get a ticket to continue in the Micro Festival series, which has a guaranteed prize pool of $10 million. Oh, and as a cheeky little bonus, if you knock me out, which even Conor McGregor couldn't do, you'll get $100 in your account in cash. So the whole thing kicks off this Thursday at 6pm live on Twitch. I'll be streaming the whole thing so if you kick in my ass, it will be there for everyone to see and the reason why you need to be involved from the start is that three of you lot over the course of this series will be chosen to play with me at the world series of poker in london you lucky lucky bastards so don't forget click the link in the description below and you can find my game search true geordie and the password will be true geordie all one word. I can't wait to see us there to find out who was going to win a share of $1,000. Be gamble away. Gamble responsibly, guys. Thanks for everything. Thanks to GG Poker. And I'll let you now enjoy the video. You can't do that. <laughs> yeah. Do you know the True Jordan? You're, <laughs> You're going to decide that, are you? What the fuck? What's wrong with it? <laughs> you know how they play. We had a phone call after my cancellation, and you gave me some amazing words. Was it helpful? Oh, you were beautiful, mate. And because you've been through it all before, a million times it feels on a weekly basis sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and just to have someone who's been there, seeing it, got the t-shirt, give me that encouragement, and say, "You're a builder. You've built something. They can't take that away, no matter how what people say." And this is temporary, and. Yeah. yeah, it really helped me, mate. Thank you. Oh, cheers, Brian. Thank you very much. We, I suppose that it's very exciting to live in other people's impressions of you when other people's impressions of you are positive. But I <laughs> that sometimes that collateral is going to get cashed in. And because I've been famous for a while, I've experienced various... The, the, the vicissitudes of it, the fluctuations. How of do you it. handle that? Because I find it like, because I've got depression and on a clinical level and I've been on medication for it. So yeah. I've always found those lows hard anyway. But the ridiculousness of uh, when all of those waves of hatred come through, it is a bit like you're kind of in a storm and you feel like you're just having to like, the rain's hitting your face and you're like, I've just got to brave this for a minute here. Some of the teachers that I really highly regard and respect would say that the reason we feel uh, sad or afraid or ashamed when something external happens is because those feelings were in us anyway like when and the the, the outside stimulant or apparently external factor simply provokes something that was within us 
One time I did this thing with Gabor Mate. Uh, you know, the uh, he's an addiction expert, Holocaust mm. survivor, Hungarian man, truth teller, brilliant, compassionate soul. I, I love him and respect him so much. He wrote the book In the Realm of the Hungry Ghost. He's uh, I don't know why I'm doing his promo. His uh, <laughs> current book is got called, a comedy uh, to our comments. <laughs> <soon. laughs> <laughs> no such thing as normal. I think is his book. <laughs> the Myth of Normal was his sort of like a, a recent mm -hmm. book he did. Anyway, we did this talk in front of people. You know, and I interviewed him. And at the end, we spoke to this, like, you know, we did, like, questions. And this woman said, oh, there's this young person in my life who's suffering from addiction. How do I help him? And he goes, well, firstly, who is the person? What's your relationship to him? Is it like a child of yours or are you their therapist? And she goes, it's my son. And he goes, well, obviously, that's different. And when you think about the your inability to help this person, where do you feel it in your body? She sort of says, my chest. She indicated her chest. And he said, uh, have you ever felt those feelings before? And she went, yeah. And, she, and he goes, I don't think that this feeling is about this person. I think that you have this feeling in you and you have to address this feeling in yourself. You have to learn to let go of it. You have to accept this feeling in yourself and let go of it and recognize this person's on their own journey. How could the, the, the speed with which Gabor Mate made this diagnosis was really sort of interesting and I would say shamanic and the reason I say shamanic is shamanism is regarded as the first religion prior to the institutional religion shall we call them Catholicism and of the various branches of Christianity and the various branches of Islam and Buddhism there were tribal religions usually based on the relationship that the people had either with the, the animals that they hunted or the crops that they grew, that they needed to have a... Because if you're looking for food all the time, your survival is based on your ability to access this food. So you need to tune into the behavior of the animal. You need to tune into the weather. You need to pr you pray that the crop is not going to fail. You pray that you will find the animal. So like that your relationship with the sacred is highly pragmatic. Now that we live, you know, yards from a budgeons or a walk-in, walk-out Amazon food place or a Whole Foods or a little, depending on your economic barrier and Asda, <laughs> where if you dare glance at the ceiling in Asda, you'll see that you're in a vast, a vast unknown hanger don't look up in asda you'll see that no inside space should be that massive it, the, 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 you instead of thinking about survival you think about you know your status everything becomes sort of tangential so what gabo Mate did in that moment is he was able to sort of say where in your body is this feeling and how are we going to help one another if we sort of can't help ourselves? So when there is a sort of a, like a moment of crisis in my own life, and they come pretty frequently, what I recognise is I'm holding on to all the pain from when I was a little kid. I'm, in fact, I'm trying to solve the problems of my trauma and my feelings of, I don't know, inferiority or fear or whatever you want to call it by managing the outside world, trying to make it so that nothing challenges me, so that nothing makes me feel frightened and inferior. But for a person like me, all I need to do is participate in a five-a-side football match to be exposed to, to the limitations of what I'm capable of controlling and to see that, oh my God, I'm not good at this. I can't cope in a transition. I don't know how to mark. I don't know when to shoot. I don't know when to lay off. My you know. God. 
So um, when these things happen, sooner or later you have to make peace with yourself. You have to look for these opportunities to let go of fear when it comes up or shame and to recognize we, we know where this ends. It, you know, what's the best case scenario? On a deathbed surrounded by your loved ones? <laughs> yeah. like, or is it a sudden adventurous death on a mountain top or scuba diving? I don't know. You tell me. You know, and sooner or later it's coming. So I guess we have to make peace with it, <coughs> not live in the bubble of reputation, I think, is it? Shakespeare call it that or is it Rudyard Kipling don't live in the bubble of reputation you mentioned that you're you regularly experience crisis um, and well, you come across as just the person who has everything together like when I watch you I think this man just has you seem to have life licked okay when was the last time you cried or got angry or both like last time I like sort of cried in a full body type crying yeah was when my cat Morrissey died, and uh, sort of not long after my friend Martino died, mm. and I felt like sort of the both of those, you know, that person and that cat, I'd known uh, like from, uh, I guess, early recovery, or even with Martino, me and him were friends while I was still using, and I felt like in a way that, you know, like people have, like witches have a familiar. Mm -hmm. You know, like you had like the black cat and the witch image is like that. That's the familiar. And I wonder what the, the idea of having a familiar is. Uh, is it to anchor you to the body? If you're a mystic, if you're a person that deals with, uh, if you deal with layers of reality, the, one of the qualities of the shaman is the shaman switches levels. We have to be able to live in the world, but not be of it. In the words of Jesus Christ, you have to accept you've got a body. You've got to pay the rent, you've got to be fit, you've got to eat well, and you have to abide by the customs, traditions, regulations, and, and laws of the society that you find yourself in. But if you define yourself solely by that, in the end, it's not going to be enough. In the end, your heart will be broken. In the end, people will die that you love. When my cat Morrissey died, it was felt like that this little cat had been the sort of the, he had held for me. A lot. I got him when I was one year clean, when I lived right round here where we're recording this in North London. And by the time that cat died, I had children and I'm married and I live in the countryside and I've been flung around the cesspit and uh, the cesspit and the ball pit of fame mm -hmm. and feel like I have a different and more remote relationship with it. And when he died, a lot that a lot of my, a lot of things I carried went with him, and I properly grieved him. I'm fr have the good fortune of a friendship with that mad scientist, Professor Noel Fitzpatrick, aka the Super Vet. And like I said, I think this cat's, you know, he's dying now. And he said like he'd come round and like help, you know, to deal with it. But I was really grateful that the cat died, that he died in his own time. In the end, you see that. He was being artificially artificially suspended. He couldn't poo on his own. He couldn't eat on his own. I was sustaining him only for myself because of my own inability to let go of him. I went from praying for him to continue living to praying for him to die peacefully. That, I suppose, is a good... That's a sign that you're ready to let go of something or someone. And when he, like, died, I felt the gr grief ripped through me. The same with my mate Martino. It was a person that had been friends with various expressions of myself. Both Martino and the Cat Morrissey had known me like in bedsits and in mansions mm -hmm. in, in Los Angeles and London, different inflections of life, mm -hmm. what it is when you don't have access to resources 
and you don't have status to what it is when you do have access to resources and you do have status and then when those things become disenchanting at this point in my life mate i suppose what i'm feeling is is a i've arrived at a point of wanting to be able to let go of accepting that you can achieve more when you let go of your will than you can when you're trying to weaponize your will when you're trying to direct the will do you mean like almost bully things into existence rather than allowing it yeah i think i do mean that using your will to become successful like i can do this i can because it's interesting isn't it you can direct your personal power to build a business you Mm -hmm. can do that you can make yourself fit you can do all sorts of stuff and in a way i'm not talking about the objective i'm talking about the mindset of it that when i surrender and this is something that's very recent and only really brought about by successive events the feeling that oh god i can't really control i can't control the world in the way that i once thought that i could Mm -hmm. Now, I'm, I feel more like I'm being carried and held by something else. There still is a sort of a, a sadness that comes with it. There's a sadness in letting go. There's a sadness in knowing that you've believed in things and that they're not real. The sort of relationships that are expunged and that disappear. All of these things, are, that there is a sort of a sadness in them. But... When my life is just about the fulfillment of what I want, it's just such a short little carousel. It's such a short little cycle. And now I feel like oh, well, I'm actually in a position where I can stop doing stuff in order that I might achieve something else down the line. And I can just start doing what I actually believe in really, really directly. And what I believe in now is personal awakening and participating where possible in the awakening of others. And that does involve critiquing political and economic systems and critiquing the media and analysis, I guess. Well, that's interesting how they're telling you that and they're not telling you that. And why are they emphasising that? And why didn't they admit that then? Like, you know, there are interesting lines of inquiry to go down. But beyond that, it's it's deeper than that because civilization is just like a veil laying upon the earth, so temporal and temporary all mm-hmm. gone now where are they you know like uh, Shelley's famous poem Ozymandias king of kings look ye upon my works and despair it stands this statue in the desert nothing around it for miles and miles everything that's achieved where will it all be even me revisiting Camden all of the bars and pubs and scenes of triumph and disaster all different now new buildings erected new businesses erected new voices if if those are the things that I'm going to form my life around, you know, what value is it really? You don't give yourself enough credit, though. Oh, thanks. Because you are one of the few people out there who is clearly having a big audience and using it for the greater good. And for all you might feel like, oh, it's not going the way I hoped it would when I was a younger, more... Uh, maybe ego-driven man and believed a bit too much in what you were able to do, what you've been able to do is still amazing. And the the difference that you are making for people like me who isn't, I'm not in, as intelligent as you and I don't have the resources that you do, but you're able to break and condense things down so that we as your fans can get that message in a much more bite-sized, understandable way. And even if you kind of feel like, I don't know, maybe that young man, where you're talking in sort of a uh, sort of re- 
remembering who you once were as if you're having to let that person go, you're making that person very proud still, surely. In a sense, I'm letting go of that person because the alternative is to hold on to it and there's nothing more. Mm terrible and dreadful than the oldest swinger in town in the convertible <laughs> and the dyed blonde hair and the sort of the ongoing wanting so there's sort of like in a sense there's no choice but to <coughs> let go and mm. I suppose I want to be where I'm you know uh, Joseph Campbell says like if you're 40 years old and you're still frightened of your mother you need to read myth if you're 80 years old and you still care about your golf score you need to read myth these are the two examples that he gave. And I suppose what he's saying is that there are stories derived from archetypes that t help to inform us of the gateways that we will pass through in life. That at adolescence, when we leave childhood behind, we're going to be confronted with certain choices. When we recognize that we are responsible for other people's well-being, there will be certain choices that we make. When we face the disappointment of knowing that we can't expect other people to carry our gold for us, that other people will let us down, that love necessarily mutates into something more grounded, that there is pain that comes with all these things. Now, like letting go of the person that I was when I was 25 or 30 or 16 or whatever, it's sort of like a, a, a necessary grieving. And it's also the, the beauty in, is it, in it is that I get to become someone else. And the person I was when I was 25 or 30 couldn't be a father to two daughters and couldn't deal with the challenges that I face now. So well, there is a sort of a sadness, but there's kind of not pride because pride as I understand it now means caring about what other people think of me. And of course I do, but I recognize it's something that I want to let go of. And where possible, I ought, Brian, replace pride with gratitude because in a sense, any ability that you or I are born with, most of them, they're just there. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a genetic aristocracy to be born with willpower or talent or something that's conveniently monetizable in the culture that you happen to find yourself in imagine lebron james in medieval pakistan if you can yeah. conceive of such a thing wow. is there such a thing as medieval pakistan i don't know that you can even apply that ca ca uh, categorization but that skill set is only valuable yeah. in 21st and 20th late 20th century mm -hmm. america like that and my skill set and your skill set we're just sort of lucky that we've landed ourselves in the place that we have in the time that we have and so also, though, uh, to your point, and I said it to you last time I was on, you have cultivated for yourself an important voice and an important following. And I feel that this space that we work in and we must always pay homage to the great avatar and alpha figure that is Joe Rogan is an opportunity for men to talk about mental health and wellness and fitness and hopefully to be participate in a conversation about how maleness, masculinity, as well as a, a scope, scale and spectrum of other forms of identity might evolve how we might talk about mental and physical fitness in ways that like, just didn't seem to be possible 30 years ago mm -hmm. when these kind of spaces weren't available. And although like, part of it is MMA and sport and hunting and carnivore diets and things that seem overtly traditionally and typically male. It does also include psychedelics 
and meditation and breath work and open-mindedness mm -hmm. about the, the academia and a discussion and discourse around progressive issues and how they might align and marry with traditionalism. And you, I think you're doing a really, really great job in that space and making mistakes like all of us must because the only yeah. way to not make mistakes is to accept other people's ideas and not to be involved in the conversation at all. Yeah, and unfortunately, our mistakes play out in front of more people than other people's mistakes do, you know. Uh, and I think all you can do is hold your hands up when these things happen. And um, in terms of masculinity, um, there's a lot of people who feel like there's an attack on masculinity right now. Mm. And you're a really interesting person in terms of where you fit on this, the spectrum of masculinity. Because on the one hand, you've always, well, when, especially when you were younger, you're very flamboyant and had a sort of, um, I don't know if feminine is the right word, but you know that, like, uh, androgynous yeah yeah you were very yeah you were very flamboyant with your humor however you have a lot of masculine qualities which is very confident very strong spoken and very intelligent and you're a performer um so yeah do you think that there's an attack on masculinity and, and how do you feel about your own masculinity i feel like there's an interesting cultural conversation taking place around power and how power is expressed through different individuals and different cultural groups. Mm -hmm. For example, you may frequently hear conversations around the how uh, women are represented in powerful roles in business or in politics. And some people would regard that as a, an important conversation and, and perhaps it is one. Another important conversation might be that if these institutions are an expression of traditional and patriarchal power, mm simply putting women into those roles may not be the best way to evolve and create a better and more representative society, i.e. if Parliament is primarily a patriarchal system, once it was only possible for men to vote, once it was only possible for men to, have, to be MPs, then by permitting women to vote and permitting women to be in Parliament, are you solving the problem or are you merely altering some of the superficial aspects? I'm, of course, not saying that women shouldn't be able to vote or that women shouldn't be able to be MPs. I'm actually saying we should be looking beyond that to different types of institutions that are truly representative. So even when there's a conversation about progressivism and uh, uh, women participating in places where they previously wouldn't and all of the cultural groups that have uh, been without question at points in history subjugated by dominator cultures and, and the, the, where the dominator and the assumption is in our culture that it's white males and that's a fair assumption in a, a northern European culture but in other cultures probably it would be different cultural groups usually male but not always white mm -hmm. because e.g. China the assumption is is that by addressing these uh, the demographic balance, you can change the systems themselves. And I don't actually think that it will change the systems themselves. Mm -hmm. As you know, I think, I believe that we really need to radically evaluate the institutions that manage and distribute power. I don't think that parliamentary democracy is ever going to deliver equality or fairness whatever word you want i think they're doing a lot of plaster over axons from what i can tell like in terms of the women they select mm. let's say we're looking for uh, diversity they just select like the most masculine women because power is masculine in the in our eyes and they just put these hillary clinton or thatcher or you know what i mean and it's like it's not really representative of a woman i know 
I don't know any woman like Hillary Clinton or Thatcher. No. No, I mean, they <laughs> Thank are. God, by the way. <laughs> in um, the sense they are a rarity. <laughs> yes, I think that um, if you're really interested in change and you're really interested in fairness and you're really interested how, let's say, the majority of people's lives could be improved, I wonder what type of representation you want and whether or not it might be interesting to look at altering the systems themselves and to, so that this doesn't sound uh, vague. What I mean is decentralised power. The more people have the ability to democratically control their own regional community, the more fairness will, I think, ensue from that. There are examples of it. There are places, for example, in Brazil, I think it's called something like Porto Alegre. I'm not the type of person that will remember the exact details or something like that, but where the budget is allocated, everyone has a vote on how the regional budget is spent. Do you want to spend it on health? Do you want to spend it on schools? Do you want to spend it on roads? Do you want to spend it on police? And they democratically allocate the budgets within that community. And this is just one example of ways that power might alter. Because it is truly representative, you find that more... at least anecdotally as I recall more people spend money on schools and health than you might assume because you again you're liberating the process from lobbying and the donor class the corruption from the corruption corruption is able to occur more easily when you centralise power because it can become more easily expressed in relationships. Yeah, you move your agenda that way. And I remember being 14 years old on, on like, the original YouTube or whatever it was and le- learning about the New World Order. And I was like, what is this? But this is what you've been fighting against, like, in a way, f- since I can remember. I guess I began by thinking that socialism mm-hmm. is the answer. And what I mean by socialism is fairness and... Uh, redistribution of wealth because we have redistribution of wealth anyway because we have subsidies of energy companies all mm-hmm. sorts of industries are subsidized all sorts of you know let's think uh, the most obvious and glaring example is in 2008 when the banks crashed they were subsidized by the taxpayer they were held together a choice was made not to uh, facilitate the financial security of the people that lost their homes but the banks that we uh, had the banks and financial institutions that it could be argued created that crisis so we do have redistribution of wealth anyway so we're just looking at different types of redistribution of wealth broadly speaking i think it's right that, that health care should be publicly funded that most people should have access to work and to facilities and education but what i've started to think is that that when you centralize these decisions and you institutionalize these matters it's both becomes corrupt and it's not able to accurately refre- reflect the vast and varying requirements of a huge number of people so i don't agree now that the state should have that the state should have should amass power the only function of the state should be to protect people primarily from i would say corporate corruption the reason i believe in decentralization is because i've come to believe that there is so there are so many ways of being human that you want as much as possible to diffuse conflict by saying well if you lot want to live like that over there then you should be able to and if you want to live like that then you should be able to and as long as people aren't being oppressed subjugated exploited then we're gonna have to leave people alone it's just a very very interesting time to be alive because there are very very, there are a lot of different ways of being human and because of the miracle of communication we're more aware of it than we once would have been there was a time when we would have lived tribally, regionally, unaware, uh, blissfully unaware of the glorious differences between different tribes in Iceland and Senegal and across the world. People have all sorts of ways of being human based on geography, based on culture and tradition. And those things, I think, are 
wonderful and the, the, for, to see that their homogenization that, that every high street looks the same everyone has the same kind of views everyone eats the same kind of food and how is it what's really behind it every high street looking the same we know now it's economic interest what's behind everyone eating highly processed food we know now it's economic interest why are people not sharing the information that if you didn't eat processed food heart disease would radically drop diabetes would disappear cancer would radically drop why are we not sharing economic reasons so we don't live without an ideology there is an ideology it's invisible and it's insidious and it's very difficult to attack it because of these centralized institutions and the relationship they have with other centralized corporate institutions so this the only way to end that i think is by attacking the institutions themselves and of course i believe in fairness i believe that people regardless of their color their identity their sexuality their gender or their sex should be free to become who they are that's what i'm trying to do i'm trying to become who i really am i'm trying to look at where the culture has been beneficial and nurturing and where the culture has been an impediment and that's a, that's a journey that we can all share in i'm pretty sure you wouldn't want me telling you what to do and how to live your life and i wouldn't want you telling me like, we're different we've got different ways of being human different assets and uh, i guess we have to find ways that we can hang together loosely and i think that will be a lot more possible if there isn't so if there aren't so many centralized biases that are impossible to address that only become observable in points of radical crisis sometimes something happens you think oh, that's weird that that was reported on in that way that was weird they didn't tell you that that's weird that they've tried to conceal that that's weird that that wasn't addressed well this you can see the outline of the corpse because of what you're not told you can see where the where the power really is because of what's observable by its symptoms by its fruits you can know it now on the other subject of masculinity and my own masculinity in obviously there are limitless ways of being male of being female and the identity conversation that's currently taking place i guess is an an an, an expression of that and i wonder how my own maleness might have been expressed if i had been uh, if I'd had access to the kind of discourse around gender and identity that's going on now. But I was sort of aware of people like David Bowie and Mark Bolan and like that in rock and in entertainment, there was a degree of fluidity and that in many cases they were people from pretty ordinary drab backgrounds like mine. And that's perhaps no coincidence that you become sort of <coughs> interested in glamour and flamboyance if there's a sort of dreariness mm-hmm. in your environment. And... I think you're right that there is a spectrum and a scale of maleness and uh, and of femaleness. And in a way, I think so many of the, th- the cultural arguments that are tying us up in knots and creating conflict can be alleviated, mm-hmm. removed, ameliorated if by simple love, by simple love. Mm-hmm. Like most of us are, know people that are very traditional and sort of conservative. Most of us know people that are pretty progressive. In your, like due to the way that generations are shifting, you're going to know people that are trans, you're going to know people that are orthodox Christians. And in a way, in, if we're all in the same room and we'll leave one another alone, it, it, things tend to go pretty well. What seems to have changed and that appears to be significant to me, mate, is this piece of analysis. We used to look at things in terms of left and right. This is no longer a helpful discourse. Now we should look at things in terms of the centre and the periphery. This comes from the analysis of Martin Gurry, a former CIA worker, who said that he noticed while working at the CIA, he's a data analyst, that in 2001 there was as much data published that year as there was in all history up to that point. So in one year, as much data and information 
edition was published as in all history up to that point. In 2002, it happened again. And then 2003, again and again, the amount of information doubling. He said that when you look at it on a graph, it looks like a tidal wave. A tidal wave is hitting. He recognized that with information available and being produced at that rate, it was going to be impossible to have the kind of centralized narratives that we'd previously had. NBC, CNN, <laughs> the American government, the BBC. Information is just spilling out. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Obviously, now we have this uh, what is known as the censorship industrial complex because mm-hmm. it's impossible to just say this is what's happening in the Ukraine-Russia conflict, or this is what happened during the pandemic, or this is what happened in the Falklands, or this is how JFK was murdered. Shut up! Now we're like, hold on a minute. What about all of these things and all of these facts? That doesn't mean that there aren't crazy crackpot conspiracy theories out there, but it also means that the idea of crackpot conspiracy theories is being used to mask the fact that centralized authoritative means media and government organizations put out untruthful narratives Mm -hmm. in order to stop people generally uprising and rejecting systems of power now that we have so he said look at things in terms of the center and the periphery so there are figures on the traditional right that are peripheral and are attacking the center there are figures on the left that are attacking the center the center widely now is interested in legitimizing authoritarianism like why can what are the reasons that we can stop people speaking freely what are the reasons we can ask people to we can restrict people's movement what are the reasons that we can control people i would suggest that we will see crises play out that legitimize the use of authority in fact i think that that has already begun to happen and that's sort of not conspiracy theory even in our lifetimes we've had like 9-11, massive financial crash. Then we have the sort of the ongoing political crises, obviously the pandemic. And I'm not suggesting that any of these things are not real or did not happen. Plainly, They're just capitalizing, they right? That's basically it, Brian, yeah. And in terms of what you were saying about the, the left versus the right, MSNBC, you had this huge moment a few months back, which you went on their own channel and openly just tore them a new one. And it was beautiful. No one could have done it the way you did because you, the way you use humor to win those battles while inserting so much information is genius. And it's when I was doing my research on you, there were so many people uh, writing articles about you, how the left have lost Russell. And it just made me wonder, like, how do you feel about people viewing you as part of their gang originally when you were seen as socialist? And now classing you as being labelled a conspiracy theorist. And the media have, I feel anyway, and maybe you'll be more aware, ramped up the the pressure around you. Of, this guy is a bad guy. He is a conspiracy theorist. He's a nutcase. He's he's talking from a shed and he's doing, you know what I mean? Like they're, they're trying to make you out as, because they're clearly threatened because your message is cutting through. And you're one of the few people who has the huge audience, but also sees the dots and can connect them. Their economic model is under threat mm. because of it is more effective to spend advertising money with you or me mm. than them, yep. ultimately. So they're going to have to amend and adapt their model. Like that's primarily what's happening. When it comes to like the labels like left and right, I really believe in individual, social, collective, and cultural justice. I absolutely believe in people's right to be who they are. I believe the biggest problems and biggest threats to the world are centralized corporate and state power, and that there's a very porous 
uh, a relationship between those two institutions that they could almost be regarded as one thing. Um, talking about pharma, the power of the pharmaceutical industry, the military industrial complex and the media. And if you look at their ownership models and the way that they are, that their shares are apportioned and the kind of crossover in their interests and the kind of crossover in people that have worked within the media and worked within the government or worked for the military industrial complex and then are, uh, have had positions in the American military, for example, and then work in foreign countries, uh, organizing weapons deal between companies mm -hmm. like Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, etc. You can see that there's just sort of one centralized systemic entity that's based on economics. You don't need to get into occultism and whether or not weird stuff's going on and whether they put on dressing gowns or do crazy stuff in clearings yeah. in the woods, although that would be wonderful too. You just can just see how power is functioning. And whenever, if you critique that stuff, and I do consider myself to be operating on behalf of the culture and community that I emerged from, which includes the ordinary working class background that I come from, that includes uh, people that have had mental health and addiction issues, that includes uh, open-heartedness to progressivism and to people that ha identify outside of conventional heterodox relationships, that's open to people that are traditional. Like, like for me, those things are important, and but what's more important than them is that the, the people that identify in those ways, traditionally or progressively, recognize that there is going to have to be a new union, a new unity. Otherwise, we're going to see more and more centralized authoritarianism and less and less liberty for everybody. That it's more important to find alliances with people that you typically wouldn't agree with than sort of doubling down on criticism and condemnation of those people. And I have noticed, of course I have noticed, that I'm being criticised. But to tell you the truth, when I was sort of a darling of those establishments, that weren't particularly great either. As soon as I, well, it was ages ago that I wrote that book, Revolution, and I'm, uh, sounds a bit grandiose to say self-educated, but I haven't been conventionally educated, i.e. university or whatever. So like... Even then, when I wrote that book, there was a bit of a how dare you sneering contempt. I remember when I was, when I was first doing like the trues and talking about politics and that. Yep. Like the people were like, oh, it sounds like park life, the blur thing, and like putting that Phil Daniels. And oh, right, they're saying because I've got this accent that I shouldn't be using yep. polysyllabic this is for, this words. This is for us only. I think yeah. there is an elitism. Yeah. And like it's been spoken of, I've spoken to quite a lot of American uh, journalists and analysts. They said that the class of journalism altered and became sort of professionalized. A lot of people said that there used to be a kind of alliance between the what was regarded as the intelligentsia and the proletariat, and that has broken down. And you can sort of see it and sense it. Take, for example, a subject like Brexit. There was a lot of sort of open disdain for people in the north for working class people everywhere oh them idiots they're racist and stuff like that was straight away what it was <coughs> that that's the straight away the story that we were told mm -hmm. that and and i think that kind of what backs that is a, it ha, has been an ongoing but veiled disdain for ordinary people that, 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 that in a sense that group is being continually demonized i remember owen jones's book uh, chavs he talked about like how even that word was an attempt to sort of revitalize attacking like oh look at him white van man union jack hanging up in the window and in a sense it's 
I mean, 50, 60, 80 years ago, who, I would just ask the question, primarily from which communities were conscripted soldiers drawn from <laughs> and told, oh, there's this thing called Britain that's really important yeah. and it's better than everything else, so we're going to ask you to die now, yeah. if that's okay. For the Queen. <laughs> For the Queen Should- and stuff. If, yeah. you do, if you wouldn't mind dying in a trench or in mm. Ypres or in some campaign in northern France or Belgium... Uh, so I so say England was pretty real to them then. The flag meant something to them then. And if like a, you know, if you ha- if you have grandparents that have been in the military, if you've l- lost people if it, like because of the services, then understandably your attitude to patriotism and nation is going to bear that inflection. And uh, like I would invite people who have that kind of traditional, uh, let's call it traditional for the want of an easier word, background to incorporate inclusivity. But I can recognise why them. It's, it's, it's certainly easy as to stoke tensions around immigration that are oh, these people it's going to be a threat they tell you that's why you can't get an appointment at the doctors this is why you can't get a house this is why you know it's very <laughs> interesting but they, uh, what i try to bring to the forefront whenever i can is if you find yourself not liking people that do not have any power how can they exact or enact or bring about change if they don't have power, if people are desperate, whether those are working class, white people, black people, Muslims, gay people, whatever, or if they're from another country, if they don't have power, how is it that they are orchestrating anything? I think the job comes, the job must be always, Brian, who is powerful? Who is making these decisions? Who mm-hmm. is benefiting? Who is controlling media? Who mm-hmm. is controlling resources? Who is controlling information? Who is attempting to prevent other information being conveyed? Um, on that basis, I think you can make better critiques and form better alliances. You know, when you mentioned earlier about sort of Bohemian Grove type stuff. Yes. Um, obviously, you've, you've been learning a lot. Um, and it feels like the higher up you go, like, the darker it gets and there's like a suspicious number of you know billionaire trillionaire pedos out there so um or at least we're led to believe um uh, how dark do you think it goes the higher up you go in terms of like satanic stuff and all of this sort of stuff i get a bit scared when i think about it i, I know people that are kind of credible academics that say it's legit and certainly there are some thing some things that are demonstrably true like mm. it, like you remember um, John Ronson and Alex Jones's stuff from like mm. the late 90s around particularly around Bohemian Grove and like oh wow no Bilderberg group and all of that that's still happening yeah. and people are meeting up and making decisions but of course i suppose if there are things like the WEF, which appears like a sort of be like a sort of soft, like soft power greenwashing or whatever, washing the movements of the powerful, creating narratives of this is how we're going to change the world without affecting these elite interests. You, mother, you, you lot are going to have fifteen-minute cities, and they're going to carry on flying around in jets. You know, like the, the promotion of ideas. Those kind of institutions and groups and organisations evidently do exist. There are people I know that talk about interdimensional beings and ceremonies and all of that and I feel that when you get into that territory unless you can sort of demonstrate it then it's almost you are arming your opponents so I think it's like I'm sort of fascinated by that stuff because it's by its nature fascinating and on a sort of personal and spiritual level I do believe that there are different layers of reality and that power is drawn from something other than the material plane and that spirituality is vital and you can access within yourself forces that are dormant and if I think that and if people are using that for good the rishis the saints the sages of the ages are going into Mm -hmm. the laboratories of the spirit and finding ways of transforming 
transforming the experience of being human through meditation and through breath work and defying on occasion, it appears, the laws of physics, then I'm sure that if people know that and are using it for good, then possibly those things are being utilized for more nefarious uh, ends. But say when I spoke to RFK, who is like, he's an interesting figure, Robert F. Kennedy, because he's like... When you see how, let's call it, the legacy media or the mainstream behaves, a figure like Trump will obviously be maligned for being libertarian and right-wing and for the many cultural, social uh, things that he's done that are pretty off-key. And then a figure like RFK, he'll be attacked for being sort of anti-vax. And, and in the end, you think, well, what, is the, what are the lines that we have to operate within? Ultimately, it's, you can choose anyone between the Clintons and the Obamas but don't move or the yeah. or the Bushes even like you know, you've got to stay within some pretty narrow lines so someone like RFK who's saying we the CIA should be disbanded the FBI should be heavily investigated the way that lobbying and donations run American politics needs to be interrogated and the fact is is that he's did a lot of work around some of the issues connected to the pandemic that was pretty thorough and rigorous when he came on our show I I was reminded of the phrase, like, you know, in uh, Fugue of Men, you can't handle the truth. I was like, bloody hell, actually, I don't think I can handle the truth. This is intense. He said stuff about the sort of funding of, certain, of like, you know, the medical response. He said, like, the, the stuff that he told me about how power operates, and it's sort of all available in the podcast, frightened me. It makes me scared. I think there's enough stuff that can be observed and proven that, strongly suggests we need a radical appraisal of the way that power functions at a national and global level. There's enough without having to get into all of that stuff about mm. occultism and uh, occultism and the, the various affiliated, more radical <coughs> issues. I can see why people are interested in it. Because it's scintillating and exciting. But even a figure like Epstein, it seems that the criminality around uh, sex and sex trafficking is secondary to some of the financial ties and financial corruption and financial relationships. Mm -hmm. And even possibly that the trafficking stuff is possibly being promoted in order to prevent us from looking at some of the financial ties to some pretty important and powerful people. Bill Gates, for one. For example, yeah. for, for what did you make person, of that? The picture of them that came out. I, it seems that they, that Bill Gates was in a position to be able to. Uh, sorry, that Jeffrey Epstein was in a position to be able to blackmail Bill Gates, and that there have been numerous meetings, not just mm -hmm. one, and that in itself is not criminal. And I'm certainly not alleging that it is. But I, uh, I um, you know, a convicted sex trafficker having that kind of access is. It's, it's pretty interesting. And he obviously had relationships with a lot of very yeah. powerful people. I heard Bill Clinton was on his plane nonstop from the records, like 20-odd times, something like that. Seems to be a matter of record. <coughs> and mm -hmm. I wonder what the case is for the legacy media for not exploring those ideas. Although, you know, we don't know what they're up to. What we do know is people like George Bush, Al Gore, all were in the same club together at school and have this, uh, you know, secret thing that they're not allowed to talk about. And then you've got uh, Boris and bloody David Cameron and all them at the same, the different different countries, same exact things. I heard from, uh, from Jordan Peterson, don't assume malfeasance when ineptitude will do. So don't <laughs> Don't assume that 
that they're doing something wicked if it's just enough that they'll be if they're inept. Oh. But if you think of some of the things that came out through Hancock's WhatsApp messages and uh, as I understand Boris Johnson's messages. Yeah. It seems that like if we'd known some of the things that we know now just about the response to coronavirus, whether it's the potential origin from a laboratory, the lack of trials for transmission, the promotion of the idea that your personal, um, uh, whether or not you made a choice to take the medications or not, had an implication towards other people uh, that um and i'm not even sure if you can say this yet on youtube that in 96 percent of cases people that were asymptomatic could not and were not infectious could not spread the disease and were not infectious all of this kind of information that there was a, a type of test available that was able to ascertain whether or not you were infectious much earlier in the process that the information about how effective lockdowns were going to be like you know these are all things that um it was not handled in a sanguine and calm way truthful information was censored on social media we know that that's now. facts yeah and it's only a couple of years ago and it's almost like time itself is getting faster and our ability to just oh well we've moved on now it's like that there are people that are still in the environs of political power Boris Johnson for example lobbying for further expenditure in the ongoing conflict between Ukraine and Russia that it felt to me like they might be demonstrably corrupt people uh, and the we even the fact that those ongoing parties took place at a time when every single person you know presumably didn't go to a funeral or attend the birth of a child or like you know or, the, or say goodbye to their loved ones say even. goodbye to their loved ones yeah. who died as a result of coronavirus and like uh, the impact on mental health and potential people taking their own lives and addiction and alcoholism and the impact on children's learning uh, all of these things suggest for uh, once again for me Decentralized power. Let people vote on this stuff, for God's sake. Let people did, determine did, for themselves. Did you see the head of, well, the old head of Twitter or whatever being questioned in court? No. Where the judge goes, so did you knowingly silence doctors? And yeah, well, yeah. why? Well, we were told to by the government. She's yeah. like, what? This is a doctor who was, are you, you, are you a doctor? No. So this doctor is an expert, is putting out valuable, truthful information, and you are silencing them at the orders of the government. And that was like in court. That's pretty powerful Mate, it's insane. Also people being called anti-vaxxers anti-vaxxers that invented vaccines yeah. and advocated for vaccination and took vaccines but said perhaps this could be used a, a little more uh, consciously and judiciously mm. are there certain communities that are more at risk are there certain cases where this would be more beneficial and others where it'd be less i can't help but feel brian that what was revealed there is that the state likes to regulate and legislate and, the, and control i.e that is the point of government is to govern and that certain industries benefited hugely financially. There was a $5 trillion wealth transfer during that period. It created a new billionaire every day. It, gave, it granted more power to some of the most powerful institutions in the world, big tech, big pharma, the media, all benefited from it. Can you divorce those discernible facts from the decisions that were made? And if you can, then that's all good also. What do you think the biggest lie that was told around COVID was to us. What I feel that the biggest transgression was is that at the very beginning, people naturally and understandably acknowledge that there is a sanctity to human life. Think about what underwrites the idea of two metres apart, masks, lockdown. All life is sacred and we must all protect and love one another. 
That's what we're here. We're here to love one another. It, we don't want to cause other people to suffer or cause other people to be sick. Do you agree with that? Yes. Right. Okay. Well, then the, the, all of the decisions are based on that. Well, where else in our society do you see that as the mindset that's playing out? Oh, well, remember, all life's sacred and we're all here to take care of each other. So let's, can I help you in any way? Do you remember the most glaring and garish examples in this city? That they housed homeless people. Like, oh, we can't have homeless people. Get them all in hostels. Right. COVID's over. Get back out. Get back in at the end of it. So, like, firstly, they revealed that homelessness could be instantaneously oh, solved and then that it was not convenient to continue doing it. Yeah. All the while, the people that were making those decisions were continuing to have what I think were pretty shit parties based primarily around cheese. <laughs> like, while that was happening, a lot was revealed. It revealed a lot. That's what I feel. Dude, homeless people, they're the ones who really got the raw in the deal. They're like, me. I wish COVID would kick in again. Well, that was sweet. That was a good deal. Um, Roof above me, head. Yeah, a little bit them. of respect. But there was also a, a lot of fear mongering, wasn't there? And that, I think that that also helped them control us. And it, it, I'm not yes. saying I agree with uh, David Icke on a lot of things, but the one thing that I took when I started going down that rabbit hole when I was a teenager learning about all these theories of his was order out of chaos. Wow. You, you bring the chaos but then you bring in the laws, you benefit from them, and the more scared and confused you can keep people, the more easier it is to have your wicked way with them. And it, that really was summed up. Yes, and problem, reaction, solution, yeah. uh, which I think was a phrase coined by Chomsky. And we just, like, this is why this is, for me, inseparable from what I would call, for the sake of simplicity, spirituality. Because if you are frightened, you are malleable. Think about when you're frightened in your own life. And I certainly I know myself. When I'm afraid, I look to authority. Like, please help me. Please show me what to do. And sheep, if that, sheep and a sheepdog, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And if that authority is corrupt, mm. then that is not good. And I think we live at a time, potentially, I'm talking primarily about American politics, but I, I guess it will come to apply here. No one has any faith in the electoral system. No one has any faith in the justice system. No one has any faith in the media. And if... if feels like we're at risk of losing faith in one another in the next american election i believe it's next year if the democrats win do you imagine for a moment that the republicans are gonna go oh well done <laughs> or vice versa it's just like, that's over yeah. and the reason that that's over is because it's he said martin gurry in that book the revolt of the public in which he offered the new systems of categorization center versus periphery rather than left versus right that new alliances will be formed he said that because of the way that the world has changed because of technology because of the ability to communicate it's suggesting new decentralized models might emerge naturally and organically mm -hmm. that power should be as close to the people affected by it as possible that we should regionalize and break down power structures wherever we can and look at the where possible how our systems of power have been biased by elite and establishment interests. Oh, this is the reason we eat this kind of food. Oh, this is the reason that we regulate in that way. Oh, this is the reason that that kind of regulation is not applied. That a new order is, oh, ironically, <laughs> trying to be born. That is a yeah. decentralized, democratic, yeah. uh, localized. Where it's, we're being told continually, it's clear in nature, a very obvious way to understand it, I think, is in the food that we eat, Brian, that we all know now that we were not evolved to have high access to sugar and fat. So when you do have high, a lot of access to sugar and fat, it's not, generally speaking, very good for you because it was a scarcity to mm -hmm. find a sugar-rich fruit in the conditions for 
which we evolved for millions of years in harmony with nature, it, usually in groups that had one purpose, survive, survive together. We have to cooperate and have relationships with one another in order to survive. Your environment becomes all automatically sacred. Your relationship with one another becomes automatically sacred. You are not separate from nature. You evolved and harmonized from nature. Now, of course, we live in a kind of zoo. We live in cubes. We have access to resources. We have access to information, much of which we do not act upon. So we eat much more sugar than we ought, much more fat than we ought. We, most of us know now we would be better off if we ate whole food that had been grown or caught in the case of those of uh, you that eat meat near where you are now in the, at the time that it is now. Curiously, that's what's generally speaking better. It would improve most people's diets radically to eat food grown where they are and to eat animals if you eat animals, obviously don't, but like you know, around where you are. That is possible that you could reorganize society and our systems to go all right well let's try to grow as much food as possible trade only where necessary not mass produce food in order to generate as much profit as possible not push upon people the kind of foods that are highly profitable and basically addictive in many cases when it comes to fast food that information is available why are we not acting on that knowledge why are we not acting on that knowledge and where else do you imagine that anthropology holds the key to how we might live differently, that we're not supposed to be living in groups of millions and millions of people, that 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 should only be the case where necessary in certain logistical municipal cases. Oh, it would be good to centralise roads and security and maybe some aspects of judiciary and law enforcement, but it has to be as democratic as possible. And democracy means that there might be people nearby that live in a way that is not appealing to you. That's what democracy might actually mean. What value is tolerance and (coughs) open-mindedness if it means I... I don't believe in other people's freedom. I don't believe in other people's freedom of expression. It has no value at all. And it seems to me, I'm not like a technological utopian, like um, some of the most influential figures in our time now, like Elon Musk. But I believe that technology could be utilized to create conditions more in alignment with how we have evolved to live rather than or reordering the way mm-hmm. we live t- to it till it's sort of unrecognizable. Of course, the process of civilization is taking our kind out of nature so that we can control resources and survive. We can survive the weather. We can survive scarcity of food. I'm not suggesting, wouldn't it be great if we all lived in caves and were covered in shit the whole time? <laughs> That's what I'm advocating for. Saying, let's let's re- recognize that the magnetic force, the power behind most of our institutions and systems is a centralizing one that only really adapts, evolves, yields or concedes anything when it's absolutely necessary and even then it's the smallest possible compromise you can see that with all, all the most significant changes whether it's the sort of the socialist movement in this country all right have a weekend all right have an hospital all right have a school but mini retirement <laughs> sorry mate you can have a little mini what i do friday right <laughs> i retire from a job i have like get a little carriage clock and everything, and everyone gathers around and like give a speech about what we're going. And then on Monday, the retirement ends. <laughs> yeah, that's the weekend. That's me, the me. weekend. I've seen your video on that, and I was fucking laughing, man, so hard. And, you know, you mentioned Elon Musk there. Mm. I, to me, he's a fascinating guy because he does seem to be trying to do some good in the world. What what do you? What do you think his intentions are? He really believes in technology, and he believes that we can solve all of Earth's problems through technology, 
through things like Neuralink and through colonizing space mm-hmm. and like all sorts of other stuff. And he's so obviously brilliant and sort of vast mm-hmm. that he has a about you know they ha- he has a vision based on technology that we can continue to manage resources. He thinks that depopulation is a bigger popula- a bigger problem than overpopulation. That the Earth won't run out of resources. And I, I'm generally speaking fascinated by Elon Musk. I think he's fascinating. Yeah, the depopulation thing is really interesting because I was looking into some stats and in terms of like babies being born, marriages, fertility, I seen you did a clip on that. It's it's plummeting. Yeah. And you're like people don't want to get married and have kids anymore, like even if you want to, fertility's down. It makes me wonder like where are we headed? I always was of a mind that oh, maybe it would be good if there were less people over time and life would become more sacred and we would care for one another. Obviously, that comes with enormous demographic challenges like an aging population, a small workforce Mm -hmm. and stuff. But I've always... What fascinates me is real radical change in order to create a better, more awakened and conscious world and how that might be achieved through the autonomous decisions of individuals acting collectively rather than imposed from the top down by some corrupt, evil, centralized force. When you talk about the fertility, that obviously has, uh, there's a dietary and toxin implication there. Like what the expert I spoke to, what's her name, Shana Swan. I spent the whole interview thinking, Shania Twain, Shania Twain. So now that I have to actually remember her name, I think it's Shana Swan. Like she said that you can't have a 50% decline in fertility without there being some external factor. Yeah. That's just too much of a radical mm. change. I feel we need to address the way that we eat, the way that we work, the, the all of it. I think everything's up for review. I don't know if I agree in sort of like we're at some apocalyptic moment because we all are individually. We're all going to mm-hmm, die. So mm-hmm. the personal apocalypse, does it matter if everyone else in the world dies at the same time as you? Who knows? <laughs> maybe, maybe not. But I do feel that this does seem like a time of such this retention and disruption and sadness and awareness mm-hmm. of unfairness and that there is an opportunity for radical reevaluation and it's going to involve technology but i think more importantly spiritual awakening at the level of the individual it is mind-blowing that 50 percent have, have gone down in fertility and no one's that should be everywhere I mean, the only person I've heard even mention it is you. Yeah. And that should be like, what the hell is going on? What is wrong with us? This is a massive problem. We need to sort this out. And it's business as usual. When these things aren't openly discussed, it does create an environment where conspiracy becomes uh, viable mm. and certainly something that's worth contemplating. The question I always consider myself is, when it comes to the category of top secret with, like, say, government documentation, what do you imagine that accumulative uh, library of top secrecy is made up of. The revelations of Edward Snowden would strongly suggest that the vast majority of it is information that demonstrates how the government often acts against the interests of the population they were elected to serve and (laughs) whose taxes pay for their work. Of course, some of it is about protecting, e.g. American or UK interests from potential external bad actors but i think most of us are starting to think that top secret basically means stuff that if you knew it you would stop complying then when you look at what do you imagine lobbying money does the money the vast sums spent by enormous global conglomerates to impact and influence the way that regulation is imposed around stuff like diet and food do you imagine that that lobbying money is like look we're just trying to feed them the best food possible and if only look here's some money just usually if you have to bribe someone to do something it's not for a good
good reason. It's not for yeah. a good reason. So the whole of top, you know, the vast majority of information that's sort of clandestine is information that if you knew it, you would refuse to cooperate. The vast um, majority of money that's spent on lobbying and donations to political parties is to enable and encourage those that are politically powerful to act against the interests of the population that they were elected to serve and in favour of the interests of corporate entities. I'm not saying what's difficult about stuff like this is that I know that there'll be countless people working in the industries of uh, big pharma and food that are well-intentioned loving people. When I was on the other side of as it were, of this kind of argument, I like, I'm perhaps would have been naive about subjects like the military and thinking, oh everyone that work, like, that's in the military, they're just interested in controlling the population or everyone that works in the police now I know that there are people like it, that a lot of people in the police force are community-oriented good people because I personally know people in the police force that are mm-hmm. just delightful and lovely. And I know loads of people that are in the military and military vets and loads of people that are in the fire service and loads of people in teaching professions that really care and mm-hmm. are trying their best and people that are nurses and people that are doctors that believe in community and, believe in, and people in science. There are... It's not about the object and it's not about the issue. It's that there is an insidious and invisible force that is, I'm not talking occultism or mystery, that is just about dominion and financial gain that is incrementally influencing every single issue and it's sort of corralling us into a tiny and unmanageable space now. So all of these resources can be unlocked. The ingenuity of uh, scientists and technicians, the bravery of people in the forces, the goodwill of people in the teaching profession, the kindness of nurses, all these things, these resources that are there, these are the things that we should enshrine, that we should elevate, that we should celebrate, that we should regulate and legislate in order to facilitate. Not all of the time do the opposite of that. Mm. So the pay like, oh, I'm free. You look at the NHS already, you can see that, you know, like it's being privatised. They've been passing bills about telling us for like the last 10 years Mm -hmm. that slowly and episodically handing over more and more power to private interests. We saw that happen again during the pandemic. Perhaps it's just a coincidence that a hugely profitable endeavour was rolled out without due scrutiny. But just look elsewhere in society and see if you can see patterns around the accumulation of wealth and power and see if it makes sense to you that the aim that's behind these things is human life is sacred, we've got to protect one another at all costs. We love one another. See if that tracks for you as an individual. Really what we're inviting people to do, Brian, both you and I, I hope, is to use the information that's available to you to make decisions for yourself and to recognise that don't that you can't go crazy as a result of it. You have to hold yourself together and stay grounded and know that something beautiful is possible, that change is possible. All of this is being undertaken optimistically. Sometimes I feel like when I'm doing all these videos and I'm talking about how corrupt they are, and what that, I feel like, oh no, really, it's going to generate despair. And I know what it's like to be in this world and to be lonely and to be depressed and feel like you've got, you don't have enough and that your life's not going anywhere and you can't trust anyone, you can't trust any institutions and you've been divorced from all meaning. And in the end, just some Friday night down the big market puking up yes. the brown is going to be enough for you. <laughs> But there's more. There's something glorious. There's something glorious available to us. Wherever you are, in some dumb downtown southern (coughs) province somewhere, if you've been romphoded off or you've been hulled to within an inch of your life, there is a new community, a new dawn. There is an awakening available for you. It's available. Wow, wow. Russell, you're fucking amazing, kid. You are amazing. (laughs) Um, You know when you were talking about in regards to you know, centralised power and the invisible forces at work. For me, it's never been more obvious, though. When you've got this bimbling old fool uh, in charge in America, in charge, 
in uh, Joe Biden. You know, the guy can barely string a sentence together, bless him. And yet, once upon a time, we used to look at the president of the United States as someone who is in charge, the ruler, the person who is the leader of the free world. And now it's just so obvious that he's basically just wheeled out. Uh, are you, in terms of voting, you once were very uh, controversial. You said, don't vote. And then obviously you changed your mind. What's your opinion about voting now? It's a bit like what I was saying about progressivism and trying to create new institutions. I, in a sense, reject the framing. I was never saying that people shouldn't be participate in democracy. There's nothing more important than you could do than participate in democracy. I was merely pointing out, and in retrospect, I think correctly, due to the subsequent furore, that you are not invited to meaningfully participate in democracy because if you were you would be able to make meaningful institutional constitutional radical communal change and that's simply not on offer here are some significant things joe biden in a speech to donors uh, from the financial industry prior to his um, election said nothing will meaningfully change. Nothing will change. That's sort of all you need to know. So it's irrelevant. For all the sturm and drang and propaganda and excitement around, like, we've got to get rid of Donald Trump. This guy's a monster. He's a gargoyle. You know, without acknowledging that much of his rhetoric and his sort of, his ability to communicate in a way that's humorous and human, astonishingly, accessed a lot of people and erode the emotional timbre of the nation in a way that ordinary politicians were unable to. When you're offered a career politician who's part of the machine, that's been part of that machine for all of their life, who has pledged that nothing will change, it's difficult to invite people to feel optimistic. It's difficult to, unless you focus them intensely on one or two issues, mm. one or two issues, and we know which ones they usually are, gun ownership, pro-life, pro-choice, and more latterly, issues around identity. This is why I think the most valuable thing we can do is to invite people to form alliances and to, like, where are you willing? When I went on to Ben Shapiro's show, and a lot of people, oh, you shouldn't go on Ben Shapiro because he's right-wing, but Ben Shapiro's plainly like a traditional person whose ideology is derived from his religious values, he's an orthodox Jew. So that's what, that's what uh, or from where he gets his, uh, his values and his principles and his mindset. I said to him, would you, recognising now the, how corrupt the central, uh, uh, let's call it political class, has become, be willing to be part of a movement for decentralisation and true democracy that meant that you would be able to run your own community democratically and if in your case that meant you know on the principles of orthodox judaism would you stand on a platform with people that were full into the black lives matter movement or full into lgbtq plus movement or full into the conversation around trust would you be on a platform with them and say like you know our group fully believes that their problems are you know the issues that came to the forefront after the murder of george floyd our group believes that the problems are fully about the sort of oppression of the truth of the complexity of gender identity and our movement in the case of Ben Shapiro is all around sort of orthodox Judaism and that we have a set of values based on the Old Testament and the Torah and the scriptures of Jewish people and we want to live according to that and what we all want to do is we want to vote against the Republican and Democrat party this centralized bipartisan complex in order that we can run our own communities in accordance with our own values, you know, as described, regionalised, I suppose. He said, yeah, of course, I accept, he said, that I am not sovereign of Earth and that there are people that want to live differently. And I think that we, by rejecting the possibility that people want to live differently from us and that we 
have no right actually to impose our beliefs on other people we I suppose we forego the possibility of real democracy and real community by handing over to, in a sense, an outdated and outmoded, you know, in the case of America, a constitutional republic, or in our case, whatever the hell this thing is based on the Magna Carta or whatever. Why are we pretending that we need to send someone off on horseback from Tyneside to London to represent the views of a community when now everyone's got devices they can vote for? X Factor or American Idol or whatever just immediately why are we not investigating the possibility of real democracy the maximum amount of power yeah. for, uh, as close as possible to the people affected by it for, so for example the- Russell sorry to interrupt you, here. Do you are you meaning like um, in the event of a lockdown we're going to have a vote everyone right. get on your phones you ready yeah why not yeah why not why not allow people to determine for themselves of course the argument that had to be mobilised was oh because it's going to affect other people now like, in a sense when it comes to the intervention, of it, would you want there to be an authority that can intervene in the case where you think a child is being mistreated by their family? I suppose you would want no. that to happen. So, okay, so we do want some judicial and law enforcement. I think most people wouldn't say it's up to a family to if they maltreat a child that's in their care or not. So I guess with the, you know, but the fact that there is some complexity to it doesn't mean that we can't investigate it because every, all of the arguments that are offered are essentially conservative arguments. They are essentially leave things the same except for give us more ability to regulate you, possibly for climate change type reasons or pandemic type reasons. Don't break down our media industrial complex or our censorship industrial complex. Don't start investigating the way that politics is funded and breaking like. He said to me, Yanis Varoufakis, who's a, you know, a communist, I believe he describes himself as, who was sort of one of the leaders of Syriza after the financial crash in Greece, they won... Uh, the election in Greece, they were the biggest party. The EU called them in and said, okay, so how are you going to be running Greece? And I feel like that what Syriza ran on was we ain't paying back them bank loans. We ain't paying it back. The people have voted on, and this is our policy. We ain't paying it back. And the, as I understand it from Yanis Varoufakis, who was the deputy leader, the dude that was a leader, was like, man, I'm going with you lot, and sort of reneged on the mandate given to the people and sold out his man. That's how Yanis Varoufakis sells it. But he said that when he was meeting with the EU, all of the, like, the financial bods and the people in charge, he realised they had no power. Because their power is the power their role affords them. They don't have, like, that, that guy couldn't go, do you know what? Don't pay us back. Like, he has to go, you're going to pay us back, otherwise we're going to impose all sorts of legislature and machinery on Greece to bloody well make sure. Like, as our man Foucault will tell you, all laws are ultimately <coughs> underwritten by violence. Like, mm. whether it's, you know, don't park here, I'm going to park here. Here is a parking fine, I'm not paying it. You've got a date to attend court, I'm not coming. Knock, 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 some geezers are at the door. Sooner or later, if you, the law is underwritten by violence. It is no coincidence that even the most seemingly innocuous ceremonies like a coronation are surrounded by militaristic imagery and, and, and I suppose visual emblems of power and wealth in order to undergird the idea that this is somehow right and just and ain't going nowhere. The ludicrous conversation about not wearing mad garters and suspenders because it's out of touch. The whole thing is out of touch. The whole thing is out of touch. And I'm not an anti-royal person, actually. I'm a pro-reality person, <laughs> a pro let's look at what we're doing with mm. our resources and what we're doing with our time and what our values are as a culture and where it's important for us to be 
what is it? You know, like, uh, oh, Gandhi says this amazing thing, that, like, you know, firstly, freedom at the level of the individual and responsibility at the level of the family. Then the family is responsible to the community and the community can be responsible to the region and the region responsible to the nation and the nation responsible to the world. Not the other way around. Not the world. There's this one sort of elite strata of power. Upside down, isn't it? It's upside down, mate. No one wants that. Mm. But, like, because I tour as a comic, you know, I go to do a gig in Newcastle or do a gig in Luton. Uh, welcome. <laughs> Get ready for a touch of reality <laughs> going to Kenilworth Road. People, it seems to me, basically want to be left alone. People want Fact. to be left alone. Yeah. Just leave me alone. Let me get on with what I'm doing. Most people actually don't want to hurt other people. Most people don't care yeah. what your religion and like. Isn't stoking all this crap up all the time, getting people in an unnecessary fervour. And thinking about what you were saying about the royal family, I mean, saying that they spent 200 million on the Queen's funeral. I mean, funerals can be pricey, but that's mm. very pricey for the public to be paying up. Um, steep. It's a bit steep, that. Uh, what was the fucking casket made out of gold? Um, and, and seeing your journey, as everyone called you, the comic, the shagger, to now family man, dad, husband, and leaving all of that behind. What, what made you do that 180? Because I'm, I'm lucky that I'm in recovery from drugs and alcohol. 20 years, congratulations. Thank you very much, mate. So I'm, I'm able, with help, because I belong to support groups and I'm a member of a community, mm -hmm. actually a decentralized community that's run fully democratically where no one is more important than anyone else and where we have a shared, shared goal to awaken and to be of service to others, knowing that we will slip up and fail, but we all help one another through salvation, redemption, believing in the good values that religion has given us. I'm able to look at what my conduct is about really if I'm obsessively eating or I'm obsessively looking at pornography or I'm obsessively gambling like anything that generates dopamine is possible to get addicted to so I'm able to look at like, is, what is this lifestyle giving you is this healthy what's the impact of this and I'm able to make changes based on firstly on being aware of it and I suppose a traditional institution like the family gives you something. It gives you something. It gives you, st obviously, stability and security. It may not be for everybody, the idea of living in a family. And certainly, actually, I've got a lot of questions about it myself. There seems to be a lot of I inhered ideas within the nuclear family. This is not a new critique. It's one of the enduring feminist critiques that the family can be quite oppressive and that it's uh, the women's rights can be consumed and submerged within a family and also that perhaps even on a more practical level children can be raised better in a group i mean I can know. you explain your dynamics so i understand it's pretty traditional i mean we live yeah. in a house i've got two kids you know like and we've got too many pets and <laughs> like i work my wife works as well yeah. but like i the the financial responsibility primarily is with me and the responsibility for raising the children is primarily with her but obviously there's a total crossover i feel like the biggest thing that like, the most important thing in my life is trying to find ways to be with them and to 
my responsibility is to let them be who they really are and trying to remain vigilant for my the ways that I impose myself on them and of course none of us by definition are aware of what our unconscious traits are and I am lucky to have mentors when it comes to fathering and being in a family and in fact all aspects of my life I turn to people in my regular moments of uncertainty and say what am I, I don't know what to do I don't know how to handle this I thought it's like you know like anybody I think it can be oppressive and difficult to be in a family and to feel the weight of that responsibility because it, it is a weight as well as being an incredible blessing and unless I can get myself to that place of acceptance which is it gets deep fast Brian my life is not my life I am in a life I am in limitless space right now somewhere between the cosmological infinite and the infinitesimally small particles or subparticles of which material reality is constituted that have stopped obeying the laws of Newtonian physics without anyone saying that it was okay for them to simultaneously be in one place simultaneously or both or neither according to the famous double slit experiment I'm in the midst of this believing myself to be an individual now the idea that my life is mine and that my day belongs to me and that I should be getting pleasure and getting power and all of that, that's an idea. It's, in fact, the defining idea <laughs> of our time. That's individualism, materialism. These are the ideas that sort of are threaded and laced throughout our society. These are offered to us as a palliative and a panacea. You'll be all right if you do this. What is commerce? What is the advertisement industry other than you should get this thing and you'll be better and you're worth it and actually you're not really good enough. Look at them. They're better than you. But if you were to do this, that's the, the whole way that this ongoing behemoth generates its vitality. It's telling us that we're not enough and we'll be better if we had this thing. Now, if you, the thing that about getting clean from drugs and alcohol is when you look at it in the way that I was granted is it's not about you give up drugs and alcohol you give up the person that was addicted to drugs and alcohol he's dead he's gone now mm. but much of me remains the field of potential that is consciousness the raw material, the prima materia of being itself, the consciousness that you participate in, that I participate in, that as far as we know everyone is participating in, this remains and it is, it is plastic and it is malleable. You can make your life into different things using the material of awareness of consciousness. I can make myself into a greedy and selfish person. Sometimes that is what happens to me. The urges of the body, the urges of the what we call for for simplicity's sake the ego i want this i don't want that the religion of my preferences is always ready to go if i relinquish the religion of my preferences like oh i don't know what i want i don't know anymore it doesn't make sense to me i keep making mistakes the whole time i give up i surrender i surrender god you take you my life is yours god do with me what you will do with me things kind of get easier and a different power <coughs> becomes available so uh, the reason i'm telling you all that when it's like you're saying who makes the breakfast is <laughs> <laughs> is because like if i don't have access to that i go mad i go mad in any life none of it makes sense to me because none of it makes sense there's no reason there's nothing in our evolution that would suggest that we have the equipment to live in a city of eight million people doing podcasts where are we deriving all of this from it's extraordinary unless you have access to something that feels real and it, for me it does come down to these sesame street things i know i can use long words and get a little esoteric sometimes but it does come down to nan values grandmother values grandfather values you know what they told you you know 
be kind to other people think about others you just don't be so bloody stupid you know <laughs> be kind you're a member of a community help one another these simple ideas are the basis for all society what is that otherwise what is it g g compete and even the early ideas of Darwinism, which have been utilized to naturalize a bunch of values that I don't think are helpful for us, i.e., um, notably, competition, survival of the fittest. There's a lot of other things in nature. Harmony. Nature is primarily harmony. No, nature is... <laughs> It is an amorphous symbiotic entity that we're living on. The Gaia theory, famously of uh, James Lovelock, God rest his soul. This is one interconnected entity that's expressing itself in various ways. It's expressing itself ornithologically uh, through marine biology. It's expressing itself through botany. It's expressing itself through humanity. One force, one interconnected force. You can tell it's one thing because it's literally on one rock in infinite space. To en endlessly indulge the idea of separateness, the level of the individual, the level of the nation, it's an illusion. You have to believe it's separate. Right now, my cells are uh, on their own, without my bidding, regenerating my uh, the, the, the digestive system, my respiratory system, all operating basically automatically. I'm breathing in the air that's around me. The idea that I'm separate from you is a, it's true to a degree but not absolutely true where are we both going to be in a thousand years time the cells that make up me and the cells that make up you and whatever the energy of consciousness is where will that be in a thousand years given that we know that energy cannot be created or destroyed that it only changes that it only changes the, your individual self my individual self are temporary illusions if you live in a temporary illusion you cannot be happy you can be distracted you can be you can be pleasured, but you can't be happy because it isn't real. The deepest truth is unitary, that we are one. And oneness, what is love other than, oh yeah, we're actually the same thing. I really love drinking this water. I really love West Ham United. I really love those shoes. I want to be one with it. I want to be connected with it. So when I'm living with my, whether I'm living my life as a family or whether I'm living as a promiscuous individual, the, the fact is for me, it's easier to access the idea of unity through duty and responsibility, I suppose, rather than the hedonic pursuit of the appetites, if the appetites are your ultimate goal, if really your goal is privilege, prestige, pleasure, then, you know, you will perhaps learn as I did that it is not successful. It feels like that detached, um, enlightened feeling that you're sort of around and you're striving for always to, to not let yourself get dragged into the, the worst things of life, the pleasure seeking and stuff like that. That's also kind of at odds a little bit with being a father because being a father is very attached being you know you have that child that literally looks up to you from day one and relies on you and you have these um animalistic feelings of protector provider and carer and on the one hand you're trying to be this enlightened person um how, how do you sort of balance that of being that guy for them they say god has no grandchildren that they have their connection with God. I have my connection with God for this, you know, the oneness, the unity. Mm. So, of course, I'm attached to them. You know, on a school trip, you can be a parent that goes on a school trip, right? The, the best possible motivation, and I can't, you know, I don't even want to reflect on what the other motivations 
could be for volunteer putting yourself forward to be one of the parents that goes on a school trip. Do you want to hang out with your kid? Yeah. I've done it for my kid's school. They go, ah, oh, yeah, we're going to Tiggy Winkles. Fantastic. <coughs> Tiggy Winkles, best little animal rescue center in the world. Why? Because it rescues uh, any wildlife. You take a pigeon or a rat or a bloody bat or anything there. It has to be an indigenous creature of the, you know what I mean? A natural creature from nature. Down at Tiggy Winkles, they'll take care of it. Brilliant organisation. Swans and robins and crows and everything. It's beautiful. School trip there that day. Oh, you can't uh, go in. I arrived there, you know, to be one of the parents with my little sandwich and that. <laughs> and, like, I'm a parent on a school trip. Oh, my God. Who am I? You know, it's weird. I, mate, I love this story about you. I had to go to Tiggy Winkles. Well, there were two school buses and, they, and I was going to get on the bus with my kid, right? But they go, oh, no, you aren't allowed on the bus with your kid. Why? And they went, oh, because in the event of a car crash, you would prioritise the rescue of your child over the other children. I was like, well, hold on a minute. So this bit of regulation is based on we're, all, we're in carnage. The bus has crashed. We're at the side of everyone. There's death. There's decay. There's blood. The horn. Ah, the wheels are still spinning. I'm sort of I've blessedly survived this terrible, terrible collision. And I see my kids and I'd step over them do I all these little five year olds and six year olds I'll grind them out I'll punch them out I'll grab that one's kidney for later like of course I mean my, my connection to my children is gonna my child is gonna play a part but I don't think I would then go and fuck the rest of the years I'd rescue as many as I possibly could it doesn't seem like a very good way to proceed with a oh, school trip if you ask me <clears throat> not to mention the fact that in a way that institutions are can be a problem and an institution is anything where there's a set of rules uh, a staff an agreement you know an ideal you know like an institution is a pretty broad definition if you look at edu- education what what is education broadly for let's say in our country to prepare the children for the labor market how does it primarily do this by encouraging conformity in a variety of ways it, and on the side you might pick up a bit of maths or woodwork or something but mainly we're preparing you for the labor market and we want you to be compliant i'm not suggesting that teachers and head teachers and people that work in the bureaucracies around education aren't well intentioned because i meet them all the time and they're fucking fantastic and god knows it's a difficult job in those ways Especially that big six-week holiday right in the middle of the summer. That must be knackering. I'm only joking. I love teachers. I love teachers. But like you find in... What a mad way. Is that the best way to bring up children? Shouldn't they be getting brought up differently? What are we trying to do here? What are we trying to achieve? So like even being a parent, even going on a school trip, putting a kid in a school, you're confronted with so many questions. If you are fundamentally a person that questions stuff, it's a rough road sometimes because nothing, some, sometimes nothing makes sense. Are either of your children as inquisitive as you, do you think? Do you see any of that in them? Because I can imagine teachers having a hard time with a little you. Especially because I've <laughs> primarily told them that above all else, always, always question authority. <laughs> Never, ever accept it. Just on the, Don't ever accept it. Use what I to call and what I was taught, anarchist calisthenics. <laughs> anarchist calisthenics means break rules every day just yeah. to remember that it's possible. Not rules that would hurt people. That's taken care of another, by another principle. Yeah. Kindness, love, do us to others, all, do unto others, all of that. But don't just automatically do what you're told. Challenge it, investigate it. Why am I being told to do that? For what reason, by whom, who benefits? So, yeah, they probably are difficult to educate. They're so difficult to raise because their answer to things like 
would you please clear up your plate and go to bed is fuck off wow. why, like, why should I trust you who are you where did you get your authority from why am I listening to you so if you raise your children to be radical you will pay a price sooner or later couple of things that's coming up for you before, oh yeah, promo. B- before we wrap up Brandemic uh, I love the word it's good, uh, isn't it? R- Russell's comedy special you can pre-order tickets available now uh, premieres on the 25th of June and we'll put the link for that in the description below you're an amazing performer Thanks, mate. Mate, love it. And uh, also, you've got a community um, three-day festival in uh, here on... How would you say that? Hay on Wye. Hay it's on like Wye. the border between England and Wales. Cool. It, the, the, part of it is the River Wye. There's this campsite where we went on a camping holiday <coughs> during the pandemic. We went camping, obviously, mm-hmm. like everyone. We had such a good time there. And the bloke who ran it, Aubrey, was so lovely. We were like, why don't we do a festival here? And then we did a festival last year. And Wim Hof come. And Vandana Shiva come. And like now this year, like more people are coming. Hiron Gracie is coming wow. there. There's some proper good yoga teachers, breath work teachers, but also people that are pretty politically radical, like that guy Callie Means who told me all this stuff about the food industry. So it's a three day event, uh, like a camping festival, mm-hmm. really, uh, around wellness and radicalism and exploring what community might mean. So, yeah, it's there. if you can't afford it, because it's a couple hundred quid, but all the money goes to drug addicts and alcoholics. We don't keep none of the money. We give it to, we give it to like, charities we support, like Friendly oh, House amazing. in LA. That's a women's treatment centre. BAC O'Connor, it's a treatment centre in Burton-on-Trent. And Trevi in Plymouth that helps women that have got kids get into recovery. So we, the, we're trying to support good things with it. I mean, that, that's amazing. And it just shows, right, that, that, that you can do no good sometimes because... When I was researching you, there was some woman who wrote a miserable article about it as if you're some grifter. And I'm like, he's doing this for charity, love. Yeah. What is wrong with you? Um, because so, yeah. it's like, I think it's, in the end, is it the result of an investigation? And then, oh my God, I've just done this investigation. This is a grift. Or do you start with, no, no. I'm going to write something bad. <laughs> that was clearly How the, can I? the agenda. Well, yeah. I could say this. It's expensive. Like, you know, there you go. I mean, perhaps I try to myself think... Am I, what am I doing when I'm critiquing government and power? Do you know what I'm trying to do? And I keep forgetting to do it. I try and think this. I'm grateful for the people that built the institutions of government. I'm grateful for the people that built the institutions of media because now these institutions are there and all that needs to change is the mindset behind them. And that's possible. We can do that at the level of the individual. So a revolution in consciousness will change all things. It will change all things. So instead of like being cynical about them and like, oh, I hate all these military industrial complex, censorship industrial complex, the machine, I hate them. Instead of that, thank you. Thank you for everything you've done so far. Now it is a new time, a new awakening, mm-hmm. different order now. So I'm going to try and do that because even, obviously, I can be quite cynical and pursue my own agenda when it comes to relaying information to be, you know, to attack the establishment. So... Maybe there's something I can learn from that. And also my show is on Rumble every day. That's, uh, it's on at 5 o'clock in our country and mm-hmm. you know, depending on time zones elsewhere. But it's a one-hour long show where it's news and interviews and just skullduggery, really. Brian. Rumble's on the up, mate. You're, uh, you're making a big difference. It's doing all right, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's doing all yeah, right. It's definitely one of the fastest growing platforms. I might have to jump on. Yeah, you especially should. with my issues, I tell you, I'm Get always pissing there. people off. Um, look, I just want to say thank you, mate. You're an absolutely amazing person. Thanks. I know that um, your heart is always in the right place, and I can honestly say, of all of the people I've interviewed, I've never met anyone who's more kind, more loving, caring than you are. Oh, that's lovely. That's the best. That's what we want to be: that's kind, it, nice people. That's it. Sometimes I want to be such extravagant things, but what else is That's there it? really than kindness? One last question. Yeah. We'll wrap it on this. How would you like to be remembered? 
I try not to think about things like that because otherwise my vanity and grandiosity will take place and I'll start thinking about like you know all of the sort of the cellophane ocean that surrounded Kensington Palace when Diana died. <laughs> it's probably just best that I let go. Of, we'll have Elton singing you off the pearly gates. That's that's all I require. Just Elton John <laughs> changing the words of Norma Jean or Rocket Again. Man, any of them really. They're all classics. <laughs> have you met Elton? Yeah, I have met him, and he was all right. I met him like I think I met him at a dinner somewhere, and yeah. I've like I wrote to him once about stuff to do with recovery, and he was pretty nice. Yeah, he's about good that. with that. He saved Robbie Williams when he's he was in his bloke, dark place. Yeah, he yeah. turned up at Robbie's house and went, "Come on, we're putting you in rehab. Off you go. Come that's enough <laughs> now, Rob." Uh, we'll leave it there. That was Russell Brand on the True Geordie podcast, one of the goats. Thank you very much. Thanks, we'll catch mate. you on the next one. Cheers. Thank you. 